Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. We are recording this bright and early on a Monday morning as we're off to Glasgow tomorrow for the last leg of the Hilo experience. Can't wait. I have been in bed all weekend preparing for Glasgow and I still feel horrific. I just said to Pandora before we started recording in a sort of wobbly tearful voice that I can't imagine ever wanting to go on a night out again. And I'm worried I'll never feel normal. But Pandora has just dosed me up with um, Sudafed nasal spray. I've downed half a bottle of Gaviscon and Dolly's taking a big hit on the Sudafed, so... Talk everyone through this Sudafed, because I think in cold and flu season... I do think, actually, it's really important, isn't it? I have been telling everyone about it, like it's sort of a hot new Amazon Prime series. I was a little bit sceptical, and she's just given me a little... Snifter, a little snifter up each nostril. And I feel like a new woman. Sudafed blocked nose spray. God, it's good. Only problem is, your nose does get addicted to it. I already want another hit. I can feel it. And then you have to... And then you have to wean your nose off. I had to do this with the help of a doctor, because I was like... (laughs) I don't know how to... My nose... Because it it started blocking. It knew every eight hours that it would get another snifter. Do you think there will be a wing of the Priory opened... For Sudafed nasal clearing. I think trivialising problems like that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. No, but anyway, so I'm going to just keep hitting the old Sudafed up the nose and I will be in the miniskirt in Glasgow tomorrow, glass of Sauvignon in hand, ready to party. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to kick us off with a great quote which made me laugh when I read it this week from your number one gal, Gemma Collins. Love her. Dolly fell in love with the GC after she called herself a meme last year. Adore her, adore her. How do I stay positive? The bank balance, darling. Love her. Such a chic reply. She's such a day. You know, in a a world where everyone's like, tell me about the latest self-care. What does wellness mean to you? How do I find happiness? That... I think the GC's got some salient words there. I still long for the day that the next time a man mistreats me that I turn to him, smack my own arse and say, you ain't ever going to get this candy. (laughs) No one's stopping you. Why have I not let myself do it yet? I hope it does turn into a memo when you do. (laughs) I have my favourite story of autumn 2019, Pandora. Lofty statement there. No, 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 this really is. This really is. A drunk man filmed thrusting at a pile of leaves with his trousers around his ankles has been jailed for eight weeks. Michael Golsorki, 26, abandoned the missionary position and scuttled away into nearby bushes after Premier Instaff shouted at him to leave. He remained hidden for 10 minutes before emerging when police arrived at the hotel in Stockport, Greater Manchester. Golsorki told officers he was mortified by the lewd act, which took place in a car park outside a beefeater pub. 
where families were eating, having consumed a cocktail of booze, cannabis, this is my favourite bit of it, cocaine. So he'd taken cocaine into a beef eater. Mobile phone footage of him apparently trying to have sex with the pile of leaves was shown at Stockport Magistrates Court, where he admitted outraging public decency and possessing cannabis. His defence lawyer stated, as a result of the embarrassment, he has no desire to return to the Premier Inn. I'm not surprised he's got no desire to return. What about the leaves? Do you know what? Could he look at a, a brown autumn leaf ever again in the same way? You're not going to like me saying this and you're going to think that I'm just trying to be humorous. I feel for him. And I get it. Of course I feel for him. He's been jailed for eight weeks for trying to shag some leaves. But I get wanting to shag some leaves. Oh, my God. I do get it. I do get it. You think he had just an absolute raging boner for autumn? Yes, and I got one yesterday in Regent's Park and there was a particular tree and I thought, do you know what? Yeah. And I know I'd been in bed since Friday and hadn't seen anyone. (laughs) I was very tired and ill. But I looked at this tree and I thought, I could do some bad things to you. I think I understand a tree more than leaves because a tree is something kind of fixed. Yes. The leaves are... How did he get any purchase? Exactly. Well, I mean, imagine it... You might have grazed his... Yes. Dolly's is going to Jane and Jericho. <laughs> England lost the rugby. Everyone is very sad about this. Do not ask me if that's the one where the men carry the ball, Dolly, as that might push people over the edge. Because it was so early. Why is it so early, the rugby? So early, I know. Why, why Charlie, is it that early? Because it's in Japan. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> that's Charlie's best ever deadpanning. And we have a general election. Another one. December the 12th. The Grinch That Stole Christmas, part two. His options were slightly running out. (laughs) Um, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn will hold a head-to-head debate on November the 19th, the first direct debate between leaders of Conservative and Labour since TV debates began in the 2010 elections. I shall be mourning the loss of a stiff drink while watching that. I'll drink one for you. I was going to say, hopefully you'll be back on the Sovi B by then. (laughs) The headmaster of a school in Bangladesh has been sentenced to death after ordering the murder of his 19-year-old student, Nusrat Jahan Rafi, earlier this year. In March, Nusrat reported him for touching her inappropriately. She was then lured onto the roof and set on fire. She died four days later. It's a salient reminder, I think, this story, that for all the progress of Me Too in the Western world, Mm. globally, it's baby steps. Mm. The fact that a woman reporting, you know, inappropriate conduct with her teacher results in this and I was riveted and horrified this weekend as were a lot of people on Twitter I saw it being retweeted tons by a thread of tweets from the journalist Talia Shadwell about the data collection of period tracking apps did you see this thread no and I'm worried because I do use one well and I'm quite dependent on mine actually I did download a baby tracking app because it tells you you know how big your baby is when you're pregnant and then it tells you each week what to expect um, well, I do have one on email. I wonder if that's still the same thing. Anyway, apparently that's a really big one for data. So just to be clear, this is just a theory. This is obviously based on conversations that have been had. The app haven't made a statement about it. So this is more just a general conversation I think people are having about data and about fertility apps. But it seems too much of a coincidence, doesn't it, for these things not to be related. Here's the thread been debating whether I should share this, but I think it's a revealing and somewhat creepy insight into how big tech navigates women's bodies. Last week, I suddenly began getting mummy and baby ads on Facebook. I don't have children, but suddenly out of nowhere, sponsored ads for baby clothing, children's books and pregnancy health were cluttering my news feeds. 
I shrugged at first, chalked it up to one of two things. I'm 30, and it made sense that the social algorithms might start trolling me like an overbearing relative asking when I'm going to get married. I also have some friends with babies. I wondered if it could be because I frequently liked posts featuring other people's kids. It didn't overly bother me, but I was curious as to how the post began appearing over the past week. Then today I made an interesting connection. Like many women I know, I use a period tracker app. I opened it today and found I hadn't logged last month's cycle, and it had flashed a warning that I was very late. Because I had forgotten to log a cycle, the app likely concluded I was pregnant and began communicating this information to third-party apps and algorithms. I corrected my cycle in the tracker app, and just like that, the ads have stopped. I find several aspects of this unsettling. Firstly, the likelihood in future that my technology is likely to know I'm pregnant before I do. Yeah. The second is less creepy and more telling about who designs this technology. It assumed, perhaps based on my age and the fact I used a fertility tracker, that I'd be really happy about being pregnant right now. So it began sending cheery mummy ads. The other aspect, which I actually found very funny, was how quickly the algorithms were eager to sell my mythical unborn baby things. Plenty has been written about the strange assumption of these apps, often pink-themed, designed with the assumption women use them to get pregnant, not avoid it. We're used to having personal data monetized, but this is the most striking example I've experienced to date. I mean, when I think about it, of, of course my data is being used on it. Of course. If, if you actually pause to think about it. But I think the thing that worries me most about that that particular anecdote is is it seems like that woman is very much in control in a in a position of privilege in her life and in her head that means she's kind of in control of her decision making and when it comes to family planning can you imagine if you were a vulnerable person who finds themselves pregnant and confused as to what to do being targeted by happy baby happy family ads and also if you had a miscarriage yeah, as in it's just thinking like about. You almost the... have to update your Facebook page to be like, by the way, Facebook. Yeah, I'm no longer pregnant. You can stop with the ads. It's just, just so just, seamless. It's like at a point when someone finds themselves pregnant, for many people that's like a really, really scary and volatile and confusing time. I was interested when she said that they assume that people using fertility apps were people that wanted to get pregnant because there definitely is that assumption. It reminded me of a piece that I think we spoke about last year, Olivia Sudic, who we had on as mm. an author guest when she wrote her essay, Exposure. Um, she wrote a piece on natural cycles for The Guardian yeah, about how she had used it as a contraceptive method and loads and loads of women had. yeah, And then a fair amount of women got pregnant. And when the app's creators were asked about it, they said, well, this is not an app. This is not meant to be used as contraception. This is meant to be used for people who are starting to think about starting a family and wouldn't mind if they did get pregnant. Mm. Wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be a mm. disaster. And that has not been communicated about these apps. No. And that is not how a ton of women use those apps. No, and actually I think that that what's dangerous about these apps is and I you get these notifications so I use one and the only reason I use it is I just I quite like feeling like I've got an awareness of where I am in my cycle which is something I wasn't so aware of when I was younger and it's more important to me now just to be aware of it for, for no other not you know birth control certainly not trying for children just being in tune with my body a bit more I got a, a notification the other day 
some people might squirm, <laughs> some people might squirm from this, but it did make me laugh where it said, this thing popped up on it and it said, it's, it's, it was talking about discharge and it said, why not keep a discharge diary so you can track where you are in your cycle and find out more and blah, blah, blah. And I just looked at this and laughed and I thought, God, how, how much is it preying on Western megalomania that we think that we can control and optimise and diaryize and be totally the boss of everything in our lives, including the inner workings of our biology through a click of a button. It just made me laugh that, like, how much of a controlling epidemic we suffer under as Western women. Bullet journaling is having such a moment that even your knickers are now doing it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And I did have a moment of being like, God, I just... This, this like the discharge diary. It's a fun diary, isn't it? I think that should be a New Year's resolution. I mean, you'd love to while away the hours when you're older, just looking back on the old discharge diary, just remembering all the good. Forget Bridget Jones' diary. Remembering all the good times, uh, but it did just just for me. I know for some people it might be very important that they keep a diary like that, but just for me, I just got that notification. I was like, do you know what the art form that I need to learn now as a woman in 2019 and just for my own temperament is surrender is total surrender and those apps are not good for the art of surrender that's what lots of neuroscientists who specialize in sleep say about sleep tracking apps Mm. um it doesn't make sleep any better just makes you more aware of how uncontrollable yes and actually i think it's um it's a false economy Because I think the more that we're told that we can control everything about our lives and our bodies, the more that when disaster strikes or or the unexpected strikes out of nowhere, which it doesn't matter how many apps you have, how much money you have, that happens to everyone, the more I think we go into absolute meltdown. It's just that lack of increasing lack of capacity for the arbitrary. Yes. And I noticed that with my diary particularly at the moment being on a tight deadline and I think everything will be fine everything will work fine I just can't have any surprises yeah I can't get ill yes no one else can get ill yeah the house can't flood Mm. but that is not life you can't create a life that with no margin for error no margin for error Instagram has announced its ban on plastic surgery filters as a way to combat an epidemic known as snapchat dysmorphia haven't heard of this particular epidemic I was unfamiliar to the term as well. I don't think I realised how much some people do doctor their pictures. Mm. So there were a few reality TV contestants, stars, who had been criticised for... Uh, I think there was one on the Only Wears Essex called Lauren Goodger who's been fined by the ASA. Oh, my God. Because she was promoting a um, slimming tea or a trimming belt or you know, something yeah. like that. And she had doctored her own body in the picture where she's holding the tea and she does it with her face as well um god that's an incredibly modern moral maze isn't it and it had got to the point as well where she had made several comments about uh there was a story last month that said that fans had taken pictures of her in a bar in spain and she had made them all delete the pictures because obviously they were pictures of her in real life rather than ones that she had augmented herself well how stressful for her Really stressful and really sad because this is obviously yeah. comes from a uh, cultural pressure that she felt having been on a reality show. Yeah. And she had then made several statements saying, I actually look way more like I do in my Instagram photos than I do in paparazzi pictures. You know, they make you look a certain way. I actually think to an extent that's true. Jamila Jamil speaks very funnily on that. She said that 
there was a time when the paparazzi would only picture her like bending over to pick up a packet of crisps to mm. fit with this rhetoric that she had put on weight. Mm. Um, so Lauren Goodger, that is obviously a sad and quite extreme example. But um, do you think that banning surgery apps can stem? I didn't even think that surgery apps was the problem. I thought the surgery itself in so many young women was more of the problem. I read a piece on Galden by Elliot Abraham that said, it's great they're banning these filters, but what about the skin lightening one? Which I think is a really good point. The skin lightening industry was worth 3.4 billion in 2017. Mm. Mm. I just, I sort of wonder if anything can stop this. That's an interesting question because that's so historic for a lot of cultures. And I'm not, condoning that or saying I think that that's fine but I think that that will take a lot longer to unpick yeah colorism is still rife and it's something as well skin lightening goes um across so many ethnicities yeah it's obviously huge in Asia yeah um but that's it that's a huge figure for an industry for essentially face bleaching the whole thing's really worrying and I think it's I think it really shows to me, actually, how more than ever we are generations divided because Gen Z is the generation that um, are said to, and of course, a large portion of them do, you know, really care about sort of things being, well, they care about the climate and they care about things being organic and they've got all these brands that are very um, sort of natural and responsive to the way that you look naturally, whether it's Glossier for makeup or Mm. it's... um, third love for underwear there's this sort of anti being like holstered and bolstered and augmented and covering up anything and Mm. you know being totally truthful and really kind of engaging with like the earth you know they're Mm. sort of earthy but then on the other hand gen z is also kylie that's kylie jenner's age Mm. they are the women doing that as well Mm. so it's a bit like you know it's a bit like when you talk about millennials like millennials go from 22 to 37 like it's a lot going on in those yeah in that generation I want to talk about Obama um, because he's my absolute hero of the last week. Um, And I wanted to talk about something that he said in an interview. In a clip that went viral, he was seen making comments on internet culture. It was at the Obama Foundation's annual summit in Chicago. He talked about it at length, but that it's been kind of distilled into a minute and a half clip, which has done the rounds. And lots of reports, I think, have somewhat inaccurately described the clip as him condemning woke culture, which I I don't actually think he was. I think that's misleading. Yeah, I agree. That makes it sound like he's anti-political correctness or... Sensitive language. Sensitive language or progressive. That's not what he was saying at all. No, no. He He was challenging something much more specific, yet much more ubiquitous and it's something that you and I have talked about lots before and I think we should display the clip in full. You know this this idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff you should get over that quickly. The world the world is messy there are ambiguities people who do really good stuff have flaws People who you are fighting may love their kids. And you know, share certain things with you. And 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 I think that one danger I see among young people, particularly on college campuses, Malia and I talk about this. Yara goes to school with my daughter. 
Um, but I do get a sense sometimes now among certain young people, and this is accelerated by social media, there is this sense sometimes of the way of me making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people. And that's enough. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the word wrong verb or then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. <laughs> what did you make of this panda? I loved it. The bits that really stood out for me are people are messy. Mm-hmm. Good people have flaws. Mm-hmm. And this assumption, this damaging assumption that the way for me to make a change is being as judgmental as possible about other people. Yeah. Also, can we talk about the fact that Yara Shahidi was interviewing him? She's a 19-year-old actor. Wow. An activist, best known for Blackish. She's at Harvard right now. Imagine interviewing a bomber age 19. Amazing. Um, I think there are two really good, very separate points being made here. I think the first probes into this idea of moral puritanism, um, and that's the kind of flattening that you and I often talk about on the podcast of, you know, either you're with the goodies or you're with the baddies, you're with me or you're against me, you're either someone who's hyper-woke and therefore you know everything and you never judge something incorrectly, you never use wrong words, you never make a joke that's inappropriate, or you're a short-sighted oik who doesn't understand the world and has no empathy and should be completely ashamed of themselves and I think it's so important that he makes it clear that people are complicated and have contradictions and to be in such a hurry to caricature and categorize people particularly ones you don't know or you know through tweets in an avatar as a way of showing that you're on the right team I think it shows nothing actually other than ignorance, (laughs) ironically. I feel a bit hesitant here because, as you know, I'm a big fan of being equivocal, but it can get taken really out of context when you say that. Because for some people, being unequivocal is a matter of survival, and I think that's right and I think that's fair, but I do think there has to be a separation of issue and nuance and what is a matter of survival and what is a matter of, sorry, I got that fact wrong or Mm. that word wrong, Mm. or as Obama says, even that verb wrong. And... It reminds me actually of a tweet by Matt Haig that I saw at the weekend. Be great if the middle class right appreciated that our backgrounds that make getting a good career harder. Be great if the middle class left appreciated there are backgrounds that make being alert to progressive views harder. People don't start in the same place. Be gentle. I found that line really resounding at the end actually. People don't start in the same place. Yeah. The second point Obama makes about judgment is the one that resonated with me the most and it's the one that makes me most nervous about the state of modern discourse as someone who has always identified as liberal from quite a young age the qualities of liberalism that that I was taught by my mother who you know proudly went on marches and called herself socialist are not the ones that I see now and sometimes I do find it quite confusing because when I was when I was young, I was told that progression and and true commitment to modernity meant exercising curiosity, compassion, open-mindedness and respect even when one's patience is wearing thin. And I've said it before on this podcast, but I find it so baffling how often the people who not only would call themselves liberal, but who wear it 
so loudly and proudly as a defining identity. This is who I am. I am left wing. How quickly those people resort to judgment, bullying, aggression, name calling and mob like manipulation um, when they've decided that when they've decided that someone needs to be told off. And this point that I'm making is is not to flatten the notion of liberal thinking and action. Yeah, I know that it's not just about being soft and nicey-nicey, and I understand it's more pressing for speakers and thinkers and activists on the, less, on the left to be more radical than anyone, because that's the source of change. But I do think that can happen fairly and respectfully. Of course it can happen fairly and respectfully. Think how many conversations you and I have with people we disagree. That might be people I know, or that might be people online, and you are, it's perfectly possible to hear each other out and to listen to each other. Mm. It's it's not impossible to do. It just does feel increasingly rare. And do you know what it is? It's this why I liked his use of judgment. The absence of wanting to humiliate. That's that's what I'm craving now. That's what I see so much, not just online, but in real life as well, that so much of it is about ego panache and power. Panache. I love that word. And judgment and humiliation. And I just think... When I have been abstractly, quietly, subtly told off and enlightened by someone, the people who've done it most effectively and who have fucking rinsed me on a really quiet level are people who had no intention of making me look like an idiot. And those are the people who those words have resonated and stuck with me more than anyone. Because I think that sounds like they weren't trying to tell you what. No, they I think weren't. That, that phrase in itself yeah. is quite... Um, revealing. I think what's really difficult now is that it can be really scary to say what you think or to ask questions or to say, you know what, I'm not sure about that, unless you're in a private space, because you will be immediately labelled as one thing or another. There's this idea that seeing both sides of the story now means that you lack empathy, but what about if the only way we move forward is if we try and empathise with the stance or the opinion or the person that we find most odious. Mm. You know, if we try and understand mm. this different point of view. It sort of comes back to this flattening now of culture into people we like and we don't like and why should we have anything to do with people we don't like? And it's why I find it quite hard when people say, I would never have a Brexiteer in my house or I've got more chance of seeing a pig fly than getting on with a Corbynite. I, I understand that you can hate what someone stands for, but the hatred has moved beyond, you know, you now hate the person. And it just isn't effective or realistic to say, well, I I refuse to talk to anyone or live my life with anyone in it that doesn't, you know, agree with my politics. It's actually really interesting. I saw someone's bio on Twitter the other day and I thought, that's it. That is exactly it. This really summarises where we are. And the bio was, I like debating politics with people who think the same as me. Oof. And I don't think it was even meant to be ironic. But here's the problem as well. The idea that one's politics is fixed for life... Or even oneself... Is, is so foolish. And our politics, whether we like it or not, no matter how fucking authentic we think we are, no matter how fixed an identity we think that we're in, our politics, our personality, our ethics, our stances are in a state of flux until we take our last breath. And to discount people because they don't adhere particularly to to exactly your politics at that time makes no sense because 
So many factors change our outlook on life. Tragedy, illness, poverty, having children, not having children, who we fall in love with, what, you know, volunteer work, what we see every day when we go to work, corporations we work for, all this stuff every day puts us in a state of flux. And we, we just have to be more accepting of that. And also, and I've fallen into this trap of defining myself like this as well, and that's not really good, actually, for your sense of self, but this idea that you are your political views and you are your opinions and you are your last tweet. Having your entire identity subsumed by your thoughts on any single matter is really dangerous for mm. all of us. It, it it bases your foundations on very flimsy, as you say, mutable, shape-shifting things. On this subject, I wasn't going to talk about this, but I will just because it's relevant to what we're talking about. I got a tweet last week from uh, a Twitter account that I think is brilliant, which is about uh, registering to vote. And, you know, I've always talked about the fact, obviously, as an advocate for democracy, that we all should exercise our, our right and power and privilege to vote. So I think it's great they're encouraging people to vote. They, they singled me out for some reason, this account, and they tweeted me saying, Dolly, these tweets are all very twee and funny and they're great and they're very Instagrammable. But I think we all want to know one thing. And what side politically is your bread buttered? I think it's time you tell everyone. And I know she wants to reply and just be like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Truly go fuck yourself. Like, I, what, in what way... Do I owe everyone me nailing my colours to the flag as part of my job and who I am of saying exactly who I'm going to vote for next month? And also, let's be honest, some of your tweets are very good, <laughs> very funny, very retweetable. They are not all Instagrammable. But you know what I mean? There's like some I just... in there that should be forgotten about, <laughs> written perhaps when you're a little bit drunk or tired. <laughs> No, I totally agree it with really that. It really pissed me off and I just felt like... But also that's insinuating as well, which I really fight against even when tempted, and I used to be tempted a lot more when I'm younger, that your social media is this like performative outlet for like being the best possible person. And I think to the extent with the Hilo, you know, it is a largely, I mean, almost totally Brexit-free zone because for us to be wittering endlessly about Brexit, I think would be trying to project that this is something that we think is really important and devastating and we really care about. I think that should go without saying. I think you should, you know, this podcast should be able to be a sort of Brexit-free zone mm. um, because also I think it's possible to talk about the way we live now without talking about mm. Brexit. And I don't think that that should somehow signify that you know we don't care about something or we're not thinking about yes. something but sometimes I do think I think oh god because of the time we live in now the unsaid has become almost more important than the said yes to and, verbalize and, and make I, everything visible and I think that's what annoyed me so much about that tweet is I just felt like you know I, I have been forthcoming about my about my politics in the past and I have talked about the fact that historically I've always been a Labour supporter except for when you voted for the monster raving loony party <laughs> except that one time <laughs> But it, it, let's say I hadn't. Let's say I wanted to keep that private. And what should be evident, you and I sit here week after week for years and years and years, giving our thoughts and our contemplations and our reactions to the way the world is unfolding. That, that should be 
enough if if I didn't want to say this is specifically who I'm voting for, that should be enough for people to understand who I am or, or what my worldview might be. Why do I have to write explicitly, like, again, like, like I'm putting it, like I'm wearing it as a band T-shirt as proof that, that, I'm, an, that I'm a good person? I think until you share on the Hilo your discharge diary, no one can really know who... <laughs> I mean, no one can really know who you are. No one will settle until that diary entry. I don't, <laughs> I don't feel like I know you at all, really. <laughs> the only critical commentary that I saw in it was from Malika Jabali, who wrote a very interesting piece of The Guardian in which she describes how she felt Obama's words were not entirely accurate of how social changes happened in the past. He also said, which we haven't featured in the clip, we can't completely remake society in a minute, so we have to make some accommodations to the existing structures. Mm -hmm. Jabali argues that this comment ignores the state of politics and current and proposed legislature at this time in America with this specific government. She writes, Obama's fundamental problem is in confusing a strategy of pragmatism with the strategy. Pragmatic approaches can coexist with more radical politics, but Obama's pattern of dismissing radical demands altogether shows a serious unwillingness to appreciate the times. Obama is committed to a notion of reaching across the aisle that may have seemed necessary in 2012, but not so much in 2019, which I think is a fair point. Janice Turner wrote for The Times about call-out culture, which I think is definitely a concern at the moment, this sort of constant sneaking on someone via the internet when they haven't done well enough. And this idea that if it didn't happen online, then it didn't happen at all. And that can lead to cancel culture. This, I mean, it's more rhetoric than anything enforced. But this idea that you can sort of delete someone when they don't comply with the invisible parameters of culture today. What do you think about the comment a few people have made that his speech went down badly with young people who are much more receptive and demanding of radical change? I'm not really young anymore, in my 30s. What do you think? I didn't see that as a response. You obviously don't follow enough uh, 16-year-olds, you know, <laughs> walk behind them to the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am often struck, actually, how I always thought I was someone that was really down with the youth. Oh, and I've never been under any illusion. No, 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 I know, no, I, trust me, I know. <laughs> you've definitely always, you've always pitched up and I've, I've pitched down in terms of age. Um... <laughs> But I had, I tell you what really made me realise that I was just out of touch with teenagers now unless I go out of my way, which can be a bit creepy, is the absolute phenomenon of TikTok. Don't know what it is. See, that shows, doesn't it, CJ? She doesn't know what TikTok is. Is it instant messaging? Most highly valued startup in the world. It's like a new... Um, is it like WhatsApp? It's a new form of social media, 15 second videos on it. Christ. So it's like the new Instagram or the new Snapchat, but it's grown quicker than like everything and everyone's obsessed with TikTok. Like, yeah, no, that that confirms what we already knew. Yeah, so that confirms. But do you know what, going back to them feeling um, like this isn't... I, I think that's right and proper. I think that we need the energy and the galvanisation of young people to want radical change. Josh Glancy wrote something interesting. Like, look actually. at Greta. Like, that's we, we desperately need those people. And Obama is coming from as a very specific context as someone who was the head policy maker of the modern world. So that's what I think he's he's talking. He's coming from that context in terms of talking about structural change happening alongside 
extreme change. God, she exists as a single name now, Greta. Like, I knew exactly how many people can you do that with? I know. How many teenagers? Yeah, that reminds me of something Josh Glancy said, actually, this idea, of course, that you always have to want to do as a teenager or as a, I don't know, in your 20s, you always want to do something different to the adults. But he, he was saying how he saw a T-shirt the other day um, that said, you know, something like, don't worry about the grown-ups, they're all going to die. And he said there's one thing wanting to do things differently and better. Every generation wants for that. Every yeah. generation wants to do stuff differently. Yeah. I want to do stuff differently starting my own family. Yeah. But he said it's another to have this absolute revulsion mm. and a really sort of crass... Of course they're all going to die. We're all going to die. But you know what? I do think that that is just the folly of youth. Like, if you think about every hit song from the 60s, it was talking about how much the generation above them had fucked everything up. But I think saying they're going to die... Yeah, I know what you mean. I know you like slogan T-shirts, so now I'm a little <laughs> bit suspicious. Were you? Did Josh see you wearing this T-shirt? <laughs> no, I am one of those old people who's going to die. Anyway, back to Obama. Sarah Dighton wrote in praise of Obama's words for The Guardian, For those doing the cancelling, it's a righteous high, a buzz of benediction, a most holy moment of delight, because when it comes to the call-out, we can all tell ourselves we're doing it for the best of reasons. We want to build a better world. We want to help our fellow citizens correct their error and protect the vulnerable from harm. And how could there be anything mean or shabby about that? What a load of self-aggrandizing bunk. Cancellation is an intoxicating blend of piousness plus power. The online pile-on is a kind of wild justice and participating in its scourging force is a tremendous thrill. Even better if you have the nous to harness and direct that outrage for yourself. The Twitterverse is studded with micro-celebrities of a front who have raised themselves to prominence on a tide of other people's anger. That's a really brilliant point. Micro-celebrities of a front. Yeah. Yeah, she then goes on to address the the very, very valid point, and I really want to stress how valid I think this is, that call-out culture and inevitable ostracism is a vital part of modern democracy for settling the injustices of specific cases such as Harvey Weinstein and his historic abuse. Totally. There are, uh, call-out culture is founded on, like, noble and effective yes. principles, which yes. is that the... The voiceless, and by that I actually, I don't even necessarily mean um, historically oppressed or minority communities, I just mean anyone that isn't famous who yeah. doesn't have a platform. Thanks to the internet, everyone now has a voice, and that mm. has been absolutely incalculable for the people being brought to justice. And she recognises that by saying, it's possible to both approve the shunning of a man subject to widely accepted accusations of sexual assault and also worry about the adoption of shunning as a universal tool of activism. Yeah. She ends by saying, the pursuit of purity is not just a wound in civil society, it's also the opposite of politics. That's not activism, that's not bringing about change, Obama said. If all you're doing is casting stones, you're probably not going to get that far. But he assumes here that people engage in politics in order to bring about change and I'm not sure that's true. As a political affiliation becomes more and more a matter of tribal identity, patrolling the borders of the in-group and singling out enemies takes on increasing importance. After all, it just feels good. Firstly, that's a brilliant piece. And I I do think Obama is just a really great orator. If all you're doing is casting stones, you're probably not going to get that far. I think is a really good reminder mm. to all of us because it's a distraction, isn't mm. it? You're not... You're not, it's sort of a regression rather than a progression. And the tribal identity thing is something I'm really interested in because there is definitely this really weird parallel thing at the moment where we're told, in a neoliberal individualist society, we're told more and more that 
the only thing that matters is how we feel our choice what's best for us but at the same time we're actually more tribal than we've ever been mm-hmm. and tribes are dangerous tribes are you know that's why they are used for marketing purposes they're used in capitalism there they erase autonomous thought anyway doll what's in the mailbag this week Quite a few listeners wrote in to say how much they related to Sophie Hayward's piece about ageing. I very much related to Sophie Hayward's article. I'm 43 and until this year my views on ageing were pretty much theoretical. Of course things are going to change but I'm not going to desperately fight against something that's inevitable. How pointless that would be. Now I see my body's boundaries starting to blur and I'm realising that the self-awareness I thought would protect me from caring about this hasn't. Rational thinking doesn't stop the shiver. And thank you to the listener who flagged Body Shop's sanitary products donation box. In a past episode of The Hilo, we mentioned that it wasn't always obvious where you could donate sanitary products. And so your local body shop is a good place to donate. And thank you to Orla for letting us know that a turtle's gender is indeed entirely dependent on the temperature of the egg throughout the nesting process. The colder eggs will be male and the warmer eggs will be female. So their position in the sand matters as the ones near the surface are warmer. Absolutely fascinating. Can you, that's what, so this is, you know, global warming is, it's going to have a yeah really big impact. I'm sure it can't just be turtles who that happens to as well. Can you imagine if that worked for humans? Do you think some pregnant women would be sitting on radiators and some would be inside fridges? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Panda, what have you been enjoying this week? I have not stopped thinking about an article I read in the Sunday Times magazine yesterday. And I think a lot of other people actually have been it's it's given a lot of people real pause for thought. It's about a woman who left her husband and her four children last Christmas to be with um, her lover, the man she was having an affair with. And she left what she calls the marital family home. This way round is more unusual. So 20 percent of women um, do not have custody of their children after a divorce, which means obviously that 80 percent of the time it's women who are left in the MFH as she calls it. So it's a story that we hear much less and it definitely seems to be one that carries a much bigger stigma because even though, weirdly, the law has not been on a woman's side when it comes to keeping her children in divorce, I don't think it changed until something like the 70s mm. by default. But, you know, these things are going to change more and more as mothers remain in the workplace. At the moment, 75% of Uh, This isn't from the article. This is just something I was looking into for some other work. 75% of mothers are in the workplace, which is higher than I thought, actually. And 92% of men. So that's only 17% between them. Mm. Men are still statistically more often the breadwinner. But in this case, this woman was the primary earner. So she worked longer hours. Her husband was the one that tended to cook the children tea, for example. And she was also the one that had the affair. So obviously in the divorce, um, she was stated as the one that had chosen to leave the home. I just wanted to read a little bit of it out. I think what's really interesting is that she wrote this anonymously. Mm. I think there could be a couple of reasons for doing that. She didn't leave that long ago, last Christmas. What are we now? November. Um, probably doesn't want to inflame things further with her ex-husband. Also, her four children are out of primary school, so probably you know doesn't want to impact relations with them. Perhaps divorce proceedings are still going on. But you do have to also wonder if it's because she was scared to put her name to it because of the stigma that carries of a woman leaving her children. I'm one of nearly 20% of women who do not have custody of the children after divorce. To use a familiar analogy, here's the remainder. 
I am the lever. Our children are staying in what the courts refer to as the matrimonial family home MFH. I come back to the MFH to stay at arranged times to look after my children. This is a legal arrangement. I cook my children's supper at arranged times. This is a legal arrangement. Whenever I walk into the house, I still half own. In order to fulfil these legal arrangements, I hold my mobile to my ear and pretend to be on the phone because I simply cannot bear the looks and gossip from the neighbours. It is clear that leaving a marriage for a mother is still frowned upon, particularly if you've left your husband for another man. This bit just cleaved my heart in two. The summer holidays were dreadful. Everyone I had ever known was posting idyllic photos of happy family holidays on every single social media platform possible. I gently muted as many as I could and in the end left the sites. I just... So interesting. I just haven't heard. I know. And that's what... That experience expressed like that before. And it's it's a long article in many other places. She says about how that's differed from the man, you know. Friends not telling her when they were going on holiday because they wanted to invite her ex-husband. Um, a lot of people talking to her or giving literature to her children about being motherless. Um, there is, you know, on the other hand, a lot of what she says she experiences or what we can imagine and we have heard that men have felt. Um, a lot of men who leave the family home are often the primary earner and have been working more than they have been doing the childcare. She says here... I used to hope I was a great feminist role. I was the breadwinner, the high earner, the successful one, as well as the adulterer. My husband's work was no less important or interesting, but as a university lecturer, it was less frenetic. He was at home more, did all the cooking. He insisted on doing it anyway at all times. You're so lucky, people would say. He allows you to work. Quite apart from the shocking sexism of that statement, it wasn't true. If he had not wanted to cook, I would have done so or organised something else. What I thought was an inspirational example of a woman working is now seen by my husband as neglect. You spent all your time working and when you weren't working, you were shagging someone else, neglecting the children, he told me. Now, I do feel like you hear that a lot from the other way mm. round. I don't feel like that is something is, that is exclusive to her mm. as a woman, where she said he insisted on doing all the cooking anyway. If he didn't want to do it, I would arrange something else. I did think, well, we do hear that a lot in reverse. Yeah. And it is important to remember that. And I'm sure as well that this is not dependent on gender, but again, heartbreaking. When I do visit the MFH, various photos of me and the children are not on the walls anymore. I'm being slowly erased from the house like someone who fell out with Stalin. This makes me unbearably tense and also weirdly insistent on my position as a mother. Meals out with the children are hard work, both for them and for me, because I want everything to be perfect, maternal and loving all the time. If I take them on holiday, it has to be ideal. Photographs all the time. Focus all the time. It was really an interesting experience reading this because... My heart broke for her in a way, I have to be honest, it wouldn't have broken if she was a man writing this article. And I have to ask myself why that is. It's probably likely informed by the fact that I'm a woman and I'm a mother. And the thought of, like, I was crying leaving this article, the thought of leaving my home as the mother is just, it absolutely devastates me. But the fact that I do seem to have more empathy for this woman reading the article, is it because she's more stigmatised? I think probably, but I obviously still have this inbuilt bias that society has, which is that it is still a bit shocking, you know, Mm -hmm. for a woman to leave. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of that great Doris Lessing quote in the 1940s. The writer Doris Lessing came to the UK um, and left her two sons in South Africa with their father because she said that no one could write with children around. And it was considered a real scandal. And it's interesting to me that Think of the miles of progress we've made since the 40s in the UK. 80 years later, it's still a scandal. Yeah. 
if I just left the family home to go right in South Africa? Yeah. But it's absolutely heartbreaking to read. And I think it's, it's heartbreaking for anyone to have to leave their home. Of course. And I think it's always so difficult. Now, as someone who is married and has children, the idea that it is selfish to follow your heart or to want to be happy in life and that if you're doing so, then you are ruining your children and you're a terrible mother. That's a desire that we find so much more difficult to marry with motherhood, the idea of that you get one life and you should be allowed to be content in it as you should be allowed to be occupied with your own happiness as well as your children's happiness taking precedent that that both things can coexist and I think we allow we allow that duality for men and fathers in a way that we just don't for women I just wanted to read the last bit so wonderfully written I wonder if it's written by a writer anyway so this is how to navigate when your children feel abandoned by you I suppose that is what her children are feeling don't rise to it when they tell you that they don't want to see you that they don't like you that they don't want to eat the birthday cake that you made them that they hate your new man that they don't want to see you at Christmas keep loving them unconditionally says a close friend just keep loving them all the time keep the doors open keep the line unbroken always I do I do it is always on a lighter but no less literary note, I very much enjoyed the Literary Friction podcast, which I discovered through you, Dolly. It's a great podcast. And I love the episodes with Sally Rooney and Ocean Vong, who's the author of a book I adored and mentioned earlier this summer called On Earth, where we're briefly gorgeous. Um, he speaks really lyrically in this really gentle, just beautiful, guiling voice about autofiction, which stands for fictionalised autobiography. And I really enjoyed Sabotage by Emma Gannon, which is the latest long-form essay from The Pound Project. It's about those self-inflicted acts, small and large, that set us back. Brene Brown says that self-sabotage comes from the shame spiral, often the sense of imposter syndrome, which doesn't allow you to enjoy the successes in your life. And Emma's interviewed and quotes from some really interesting people about what it is like I think to believe in what you are doing and to believe in yourself I really liked this quote by Elizabeth Gatskill made me laugh a reminder that no one else is as concerned with your faults as you are people may flatter themselves into thinking that their faults are always present to other people's minds as if they believe that the world is always contemplating their individual charms and virtues love that (laughs) quite humbling um, I've actually really been enjoying a lot of long form essays recently. So I just wanted to do a quick name check for anyone who's looking for some um, probing and uh, curious nonfiction reads. Susan Sontag's A Woman's Beauty, A Put Down or A Power Source. That's pretty short. That's from 1975. I think it still really resonates today. As does One Dimensional Woman by Nina Power. Can't believe it was written in 2009. So much of it is still very much conversations we're having a decade on like when she talks about the faux radicality of liking your own body not that it's not really important for women who have definitely been taught to be sort of insecure about their body and to rate it alongside other women but the way that often feminism is discussed and flattened into whether or not you are empowered by your body Mm. and that that's kind of become this isolated conversation um 
And I think that's really interesting. It's something that various writers and thinkers are thinking a lot about at the moment. And for that, I really recommend The Cult of Difficult Women, which is an essay by Gia Tolentino in Trip Mirror. And then lastly, I reread Exposure by Olivia Sujic, which I mentioned earlier in the episode, actually, weirdly. And it just truly blows me away, this essay. I folded down so many pages. Can we please talk about modern love? I'm desperate to talk about modern love, but I think we should talk about modern love at the end. So people, because there will be spoilers. Okay, that's a good plan. And then they can just... Yeah, yeah. so they can just skip out the last section of this podcast. What have you been consuming? I am completely, completely, completely obsessed with a podcast called Dolly Parton's America. (laughs) It's so good, Pandora. I cannot recommend it enough. Everyone I know who's listening to it is addicted to it it's a really intelligent and sophisticated series um that includes very in-depth interviews with dolly parton and people who've worked with dolly parton uh, but goes so beyond discussions of dolly parton and her music that i almost can't find the words to do it justice it's 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 about america really and, and the state of america and it's looking at Dolly Parton as a slice of America. The first episode kicks off with talking about, and I've been to a Dolly Parton gig, and I know this to be true, about how transcendent her audience appeal is. And there's some really interesting testing that they've done on her audiences. And across the board, she encompasses more politically than any other artist. How interesting. Yeah, and they go through all the other artists as well and about where there's like a particular way of, you'd be fascinated by a particular way of of monitoring the diversity of, of an audience. Um, and, they, and they're kind of looking at what is it about her that's, that's the hope of America in a weird way that unites. Um, and that's kind of the overarching question of the whole series. Um, and I think there are nine episodes. Episode one, it's it's coming out week by week. So I can't wait for tomorrow. There's the new episode. The first episode is called Sad Ass Songs. And it's uh, looking at very, very early Dolly Parton music, which uh, you don't really hear that often, which is full of pain. I've discovered so many beautiful early Dolly Parton songs that have made me weep over the weekend. There's one called The Bridge that has the most arresting and heartbreaking ending of any song I think I've ever heard. And it looks at where the pain in these songs come from. And they talk about, in the tradition of country music and kind of southern folklore, that when Dolly Parton was growing up, she heard a lot of stories within her family or in the store, or in the like, from local people, or in the lyrics of the of the kind of most famous country songs about women being. It's extraordinary how in plain sight it is in the lyrics. Women being um, uh, cheated on by their husbands and then locked up in a mental asylum, so just to keep them quiet. About women being pregnant with unwanted babies and. There's one song that's really famous about how the man just batters her and puts her in the in the river. And it, it goes into this kind of journalistic probing of where these songs and stories came from and how they became so ubiquitous in country music. And it looks at how Dolly Parton's early songs, which are full of uh, pain, of, of the humiliation of being cheated, of being lied to, of being pushed around, of being violated that she basically was offering up the other narrator's side of things, the women that you never hear from mm. through all these male country songs historically. Um, 
and it's just really chilling. And she talks about her own battles with her mental health in a very candid way. She talks about contemplating suicide, which I've never heard her speak so openly about something so raw. Um, the second episode is fascinating. It's about the story behind the song I Will Always Love You, which obviously made more famous probably to our listeners by Whitney Houston. And it's all about a man called Dolly Parton wrote that song for a man called Porter Wagner, who was a famous, huge country artist when she was emerging in Nashville and she was like 21. He was old enough to be her dad. He invited her onto his show as his like girl singer and they would do duets every week and they became very famous as this like duo singing. Um, and then the relationship became more kind of they don't she doesn't call it abusive but you can hear in the clips that they play that he had entire control and power in this relationship and that as she as a young emerging singer wanted to find her own identity and her own audience but she knew that he wouldn't let her go so she went away and wrote a song I will always love you went into his office just said sit down sang it to him and that was her handing in her notice basically and he said uh, I'll let you go, but you have to let me produce that song. He then was so bitter and sad about the fact that she had left him and then had this enormous career that he immediately tried to sue her for a million dollars, which she didn't have. It's like the Hitchcock, um, Tibby Hedrick. Yeah, it, but it's an amazing story. She she didn't have it, but she agreed to because she knew just how hurt he was and she felt like she wouldn't have had any career if it hadn't been for him taking a chance on her. So she, they fell out and they didn't talk and it took her years and years, but she paid him this million dollars. And then in later life, they made amends and she said she understood why he did it and he apologised. And then he came into money troubles near the end of his life and she was Dolly Parton at this point, huge, multi-multi-millionaire, and she wanted to help him out, but she wanted to save, she didn't want to embarrass him, so she bought his entire catalogue near the end of his life. And she then just gave it to his kids. She didn't, she didn't want to do anything with it. She wanted it to be with him. And uh, then, so even though he... I love this story behind that song. Because, I, God, I, this is probably going to really upset you. I didn't know it was a Dolly Parton song. No, I, I think a lot of people don't. And the reason I think it's such a beautiful um, tale is that it's a beautiful story about forgiveness. And then when he died, she was by his side years and years and years and years later. And within within apparently a year of Whitney Houston recording that song, she had made... So I think she bought his catalogue for a million, and within a year she made three million from one year from Whitney Houston doing that cover. So it's a beautiful story about good deeds. And karma. And karma. And it's financial karma coming yeah, away. Yeah, it's, it's just, I can't tell you how well this whole series is produced and the story is executed so well. The narrator is wonderful. There's really great intel. They've got great sources. And as I said, it's not just about Dolly. It's about America and class and politics and womanhood. And I just adore it. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Thanks, Dolly, for that. You're always my podcast recommender well here's one more russell t davis on desert island discs who i'm sure lots of our listeners will know is the writer of years and years and doctor who and queer as folk it's a beautiful episode at the beginning he talks about the nature of writing and what the activity of writing actually is and i would love for you to listen to it because i think it's the most accurate description of what day-to-day writing is and he said 
what happens is you have a broad idea and you get these little bursts of things that really excite you, these little vignettes or this character or this sentence or this idea and you plumb straight in and you just, that's what excites you. And then you have to build from that and that's the kind of boring stuff. And he said, every, every time he writes, there's a loss. He said, writing is an act of loss. I've never heard someone say it like that. And I think it's so true where basically you're saying goodbye to so much of what you thought it was going to be. And that's kind of what the editing process is as well. It's a great act of loss over and over again. He also talked about how important it is to him to write about the gay experience and what that process and the reaction has been like over the years. But the bit that really stood out for me is him talking about his late partner who they were together for 20 years, I think. And he very, very tragically died uh, fairly recently and he speaks about his partner with so much love and he he draws a picture of him so so clearly and uh the bit that I wanted to insert is him talking about their wedding day he said that his partner had wanted to marry him for so long and he doesn't believe in marriage so he just kept saying no and then he said he finally finally won because he was terminally ill so it was too hard to argue with and he tells a story about their wedding day which just warmed my heart and sounds like a perfect day we kept it very small it was just four friends of ours and we chose this music as the play-in track as we walked in together into the register office and this would be playing as we walked down the aisle. So as we did it, as we walked down the aisle, the music cut out. Mr Blue Sky stopped. I'll tell you why it stopped, which is because there's an automatic cutout in our register office whenever noise in the room gets too great. The noise in the room gets too great because our friends were laughing so much out loud <laughs> because he'd finally trapped me into this marriage. And I think I think it was the look on his face, which was the biggest smile in the world, and the look on my face, which was grim, was just <laughs> absolutely... They literally laughed so loudly that the music had to stop. Who needs 100 people when four people can laugh you all the way through it like that? It's great. Beautiful day. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We face the music together. Throw our hats in the ring. Right, now we can talk about modern love. Before we do, should we issue a spoiler alert just in case we accidentally drop any spoilers? People get very upset about spoilers, which I completely understand. So for anyone who isn't familiar, Modern Love is an anthology series that's on Amazon Prime that is based on a huge hit column that ran in the New York Times. Does it still run in the New York Times? Yeah, I think it does. And it's just... It's been going 20 years, isn't it? It's like personal essays of modern love, of modern love stories. In all its forms. In all its forms. Parental, uh, friendship. Lost, nostalgic. Romantic. Yeah. 
and it's be it was made into a book which has been published and it's now inspired this series that each episode looks at a different extraordinary story of love from all those collections of essays and it is so tender and so funny and true and moving and messy and I love it and I knew you would too because some cynics have said it's just too sincere and earnest and I do understand that but you know what I have just sunk into my sincerity as I've got older like it's a lovely velour dressing gown and I don't mind how cheesy and earnest it is. I was going to say this I've been resisting watching it because I just didn't have the time to get lost into a box set and then I was so thrilled to see that the whole thing is four hours long yeah half an hour each episode eight episodes so I was like great and perfectly formed so did it over a Friday night and a Saturday night and I was going to say that to you I was completely undone by it me too I don't know if I just really needed a good cry like overtired over emotional but I absolutely sobbed through the first episode about the really tender relationship between a um, single mother and her doorman. My doorman is my main man, is the name of that episode. And the one about the woman that had bipolar, which is played sensationally by Anne Hathaway. That's the real standout episode, I think. But you're right, I have read, because you know me, I always go off and read the reviews um, of everything, which probably dents my enjoyment of some things. I shouldn't always read around so much. I should just trust the fact that I've liked it. But the reviews aren't great, actually. Really? Yeah, and it's what you said. It's people are obsessed with how sentimental they are. But I am really sentimental. So am I. So am I. I'm also particularly sentimental about interconnected stories of love. As you know, I love love, actually. (laughs) I was looking at my iPhone notes yesterday for something and I saw that I've got an entire note about my favourite quotes from Love Actually, (laughs) which I'll probably wheel out again come Christmas. So for me, it was... I mean, as you say, just it felt so incredibly um, right and true. Um, And not mawkish for me. It didn't feel mawkish. Yeah, I didn't think it was mawkish at all. Some of the bits that I really loved is where there's a man who's got, you know, quite bad self-esteem and anxiety. And he has a date, he's got a second date with an absolutely beautiful woman and everyone looks at her and is, you know, he thinks clearly thinking, why is she with him? And then he ends up having an accident and he has to go to hospital. And he can't believe she's still there. And he says to her... This is their first date. Second date. Second date, yeah. And he says to her, even if even if nothing happens with us, and he suspects it might not because she's recently out of a new relationship, he says, I, I won't forget this moment that you were here and how you made me feel. And I thought that was such an important reminder that every time relationships end, it's so tempting to define the whole relationship by how it began or how it ended, what went wrong, rather than just this moment in time where you felt this really specific way and that can't be ta- that can't be taken away it can't be taken away and it can't be explained away it just sort of is and another real highlight for me is when two old people fall in love and she says um old love is no different from young love oh that bit i feel like i'm gonna cry even you just saying that where she said that we still we still would touch each other as much as we could in the apartment. We still would make each other laugh. We still, that that everything about teenage, the giddiness of teenage love, you're never immune to that really, even in your 70s. 
Yeah. What were your highlights? I loved the episode. Um, this is obviously because I'm a woman who went through extensive Freudian therapy. I loved the episode that was about the girl looking for a father figure. And she dated a man who was, he it was uncomfortable. He must be about 30 years older than her. He's 34 years older than her. And, that ex- and she didn't, she was under the impression they weren't dating. And he was looking for a romantic uh, dynamic and she was looking, her father is dead and she was looking for um, a father figure. And I, I, I know for a lot of people it will, be, it will be a hard episode to chew that one, but... It, it's, it, it plays exactly to the things that interest me about relationships and about about how much there is an argument to be made that when we leave our parents at 18, through our relationships the rest of our lives, we are sort of looking for a replacement. Both parties are in an equal and happy dynamic. How much we look for the nurturing and understanding to be replicated for the rest of our lives. That episode really interesting is the only episode that wasn't directed by the writer because they're really? all they were all written um and directed by different people which can be a bit discombobulated to be fair at mm. times like the anne hathaway episode where she's sort of this rita ha- hayworth um musical character is quite at odds with the simplicity of others maybe but that episode was written by a writer who very sadly died and then it was directed by emmy really? rossum who is an actor who was in Phantom of the Opera. Yes, I saw that in the credits. And she talks about how people found that uncomfortable, but she said, you know, that's okay to find it uncomfortable. Yeah. I wasn't trying to make a comfortable story. Um, I've got a little surprise for you. Oh, you babe. So I thank you so much. I literally was about to order this book. This is the book of modern love. And I, um, I went, I highlighted a few because I wanted to see which ones didn't make it in, actually. And do you know what? I'm going to... I know this won't be popular. There's a couple that I think worked much better on screen than written. Really? Yes. Um, Guzmín, uh, my my doorman is my main man. Mm. That on screen is incredibly powerful. Yes. Maggie, I was never looking at the man. I was looking at you. Oh, great. Yeah, man. because that isn't in the story. There's been some cinematic embellishment. And the one I thought would make an amazing one, I wonder if they will turn it into one, is one by um, Ayla Waldman, who's a uh, very famous writer. She writes a lot with her husband, um, Michael Chabon. And it's about how she loves her husband more than her children. Wow. And she said here... What is that one called? That one is called... So they're all quite short. Truly, Madly, Guiltily. Wow, I've never read anything like that before. Well, she says... I don't see anything like this. Um, That's, I think, kind of why she wrote it. And if my children resent having been moons rather than the sun, if they berate me for not having loved them enough, if they call me a bad mother, I will tell them that I wish for them a love like I have for their father. I will tell them that they are my children and they deserve both to love and to be loved like that. I will tell them to settle for nothing less than what they saw when they looked at me looking at him. Wow. I think you're going to really enjoy I'm it. I'm going to love that. Thank you so much. So, safe to say this is mine and Pandora's numero uno supreme top tier recommendation of this week. And we get it. It's a bit of a weeper. It's a bit sentimental. <laughs> it's a bit sincere. But these old gals are all up for that in this you, And also, I think, just try... This is something that I really force myself to do. Just try to give yourself permission to be sincere. Just leave your scepticism at the door just for one episode and just see how it feels. Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com and tweet us at The Hilo Show. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.